Hi, I'm Jonathan Pennington, and this is the Human Flourishing Podcast. This podcast is a repository of a wide variety of sermons, lectures, interviews, and other resources that I've recorded over the years. Today's episode is a sermon I preached at Sojourn East in Louisville, Kentucky. You're listening to the Matthew Sermon Series at Sojourn East. In this series, we're following Jesus as he calls us to take on his yoke and experience true discipleship. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. About nine in the morning, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, you also go and work in my vineyard, and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. He went out again about noon and about three in the afternoon and did the same thing. About five in the afternoon, he went out and found still others standing around. He asked them, why have you been standing here all day doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, they answered. He said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. The workers who were hired about five in the afternoon came and each received a denarius. So when those who were hired first, so when those came who were hired first, they expected to receive more. But each one of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These who were hired last worked only one hour, they said, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, I'm not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I gave to you. Don't I have the right to do what what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I'm generous? So the last will be first and the first will be last. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. You know, back in 2004, there began to be a discussion at the Harvard Business School about a psychological phenomenon called FOMO. FOMO, the fear of missing out. Maybe you've heard of this, maybe you haven't. A number of marketing and psychological researchers began to observe that in our age of social media saturation and really overconnectedness via social media, that people in society, especially younger people, were increasingly being affected by this sense that they must be missing out on something better going on someplace else, some other better thing in life, that other people were having a better time than they were. And this increasing sense of FOMO has been tied to all kinds of psychological problems you can imagine, including anxiety and depression and just overall psychological well-being. In short, FOMO has a distorting effect on our souls because it's the opposite of one of the things we need the most, which is contentment. Now, while FOMO has only been defined that as, as of late, of course, this is something older than just the modern period. This is an ancient reality. It's, a, it's really a human problem. And I want you to tuck that idea away in your minds as we turn to Holy Scripture, and we'll come back to it a couple of times. Now, this morning, as we continue our wonderful, our joyful and challenging walk through the Gospel of Matthew, 
We're going to be listening to one of Jesus' parables, and it's really one of the most provocative parables. We just heard Lindsay read it, and we call it the laborers in the vineyard. Now, I personally love this parable. I'm convinced that it has a powerful message from Jesus to you and me, if we have ears to embrace it. But I also acknowledge it is a confusing parable. It's even a frustrating one. And to hear its message, we have to pay careful attention to why Jesus said it. Most interpreters just kind of look at the inside of this parable, and it's, it can actually be pretty confusing. And I don't know what you felt when you were hearing it, but we'll, we'll get back to that. But I think the key to understanding this parable well is to look at the context that occurs right before and ask, why did Jesus say this parable? And that's the key. So what I want to do briefly before we get back to the parable, I want to briefly look at Matthew chapter 19 and see what the run-up is, why Jesus said this parable. And so if you have a Bible, I'd encourage you. In fact, I encourage you, bring a Bible. And if you need a Bible, we will give you one. But it's great to have a Bible with you. If you want to pull it up on your phone, you can just put NIV Matthew 19, and that'll come up for you so you can follow along with me. We'll put some words on the screen as well. So what leads up to our parable in chapter 20? Well, it's actually a very famous story that probably a lot of people have heard before, and it's a very disappointing story. It's a story we call the story of the rich young ruler. If you look back in Matthew 19, verses 16 to 22, you have a a very pious young Jewish man who comes to Jesus because he's experiencing, I think, a kind of first century religious form of FOMO. He is a godly man on all accounts. He knows the scriptures He's diligently seeking to live according to the Ten Commandments. He's successful. He's well-regarded. He has lots of money. But he hears about this new teacher, Jesus, and he begins to wonder, is there something more? Am I missing out on something? And in this case, we would say this is like a justified FOMO, but he wondered whether he was missing something. So he comes to Jesus and he asks him, What do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And the young man was probably looking for an affirmation of all of his goodness and obedience. By all accounts, he was a very good man. But instead, if you look at verse 21, Jesus goes straight for the spiritual jugular, or better, the heart, and Jesus says this, if you wish to be complete, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. So Jesus calls this man to give up what he has in this life so that he can find life in following Jesus. But if you read the rest of the story, you'll see very sadly, he can't do it. He loves his life too much, and so he walks away. And this religious young man becomes really a parable in Matthew of the dangers of wealth in our own lives, that wealth can choke us and blind us with this false sense of security and the pleasures that wealth gives such that we never actually find true life and true pleasure in God's kingdom. I'm reminded when I read the story of an earlier parable Jesus taught on the four soils. You remember the third soil was one where the the riches of the world choke out and the, the person does not bear fruit. So right after this happens, good old Peter, if you've been following along in Matthew, who is just increasingly the leader, and he's always wholehearted and usually has his foot in his mouth as well, he steps up in boldness, and he reminds Jesus that 
he and the other disciples, they're not like this young man. They have given up everything. Look at verse 27. He says, Peter answered him, we have left everything to follow you. What then will be for us? (laughs) Wow, pretty bold, Peter. How's Jesus going to respond to this? Well, I always, when I read this, expect it to be another thing like Matthew 16, where Jesus returns to him and says, how dare you think about yourself at a time like this, Peter? Can't you just see this man just walked away? But instead, look at how verse, or chapter 19 ends with these beautiful and glorious verses. Jesus said to them, verse 28, Truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, that's Jesus, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or mother, everyone, or father or wife or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and many who are last will be first. I wish we had time this morning to unpack Many of the wonderful things going on here, we don't. But here's the gist of it. Jesus promises staggering rewards in the life to come for those who faithfully follow him in life now. Let me say that again. Jesus promises staggering rewards in the life to come for those who faithfully follow him in life now. Jesus appeals to our deepest desires what you and I long for, to to experience the true and free and abundant life in God's coming kingdom. And that is very clearly what awaits those who follow Jesus. Now, a lot of times, it's really interesting to me about the story, is that a lot of times when Jesus said something, it becomes very clear the disciples had no idea what he was talking about. That's something you see all throughout the Gospels. But I guarantee you, you can bet that they understood exactly what Jesus said in these verses, that they were going to rule with him in God's coming kingdom. In fact, we know that because they didn't stop thinking about it. If you were to flip ahead or you don't have to, you can just listen to, the, to Matthew chapter 20, verses 21 and following, you'll see that James and John, two of the disciples, send their mommy to go ask Jesus if they can sit at the right hand and the left hand of his kingdom. So they haven't stopped thinking about the fact that he said, you're going to sit in 12 thrones. In other words, they're saying, hey, Jesus, we're thankful for the 12 thrones promise. That's amazing. But we don't want to be way down here at the kids' table, right? We don't want to be in thrones 11 or 12. We want to be up by Jesus where we can hear all the jokes and make sure we're in on things and even kind of maybe lean against him. We, we want to be at your right hand and your left. And if you remember back at the beginning of chapter 18, this is how this whole thing started too, where they were debating with each other, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? So when Jesus said that his disciples are special and that they would be greatly honored in God's coming kingdom, their hearts and minds latched onto this beautiful truth and they could not stop thinking about it. And all of that is the setup for our parable. Why do I know this is the setup? We'll look again at the last verse of chapter 19. But many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. And then look at the end of the parable, chapter 20, verse 16. So the last will be first, and the first will be last. What's inside of those two statements? It's our parable. Our parable from chapter 20. So we've heard it read. Let's now 
walk through it and see if we can understand it. Starting in verse 1 of chapter 20, Jesus says, For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard, and he agreed to pay them a denarius for a day and sent them into his vineyard. So first, as very typical in a story or parable, you get the setup, and we learn that Jesus is going to try to explain something about what the kingdom of God is like with an analogy, and that's what parables are. Parables are just basically analogies. They say, this is like this, and that'll help you understand it. And this particular analogy for the kingdom is based on something that would be very familiar in Jesus' day that maybe isn't so much for us, and that is the practice of hiring day laborers, agricultural day laborers. Again, it's not something that's totally familiar to us. I think we can understand it. Just a week ago on Saturday, I hired my son and six of his college soccer team buddies to do a ton of yard work in the back. And at the end of the workday, I you know, gathered them all together with this big wad of cash to pay them. And it was all I could do to not mess with them in the way this parable does. But I paid them all the same amount. But I wanted to. In my heart, I wanted to mess with them. But it, So we can understand this sort, of, uh, this sort of day laboring that's just paid. And so, so far, this story is pretty mundane and uneventful. This is what landowners did. They would go to the center of town at the, early in the morning. They would select people that were there looking for work to go work in their vineyards, to do field, to, to weeding or picking the harvest, whatever it was. And the agreed upon payment of a denarius, it's completely normal. This was the working wage for a day. It's a fair wage. It's be like, I don't know what they pay nowadays, but like $100 a day to be a substitute teacher or whatever someone doing manual labor would get hired through a temp agency for a day. It was a fair wage. But then the story gets interesting, and it really develops in three phases or acts. Look at the first act, starting in verse 3. Now, about 9 in the morning, so sorry, a few hours into the workday, about 9 in the morning, he went out and he saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing, and he said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. He went out again about noon, about three in the afternoon, did the same thing. And about five in the afternoon, workday is almost over, he went out and found still others standing around. And he asked them, why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, they answered. That's the first phase. And the first thing that seems a little odd in this story is that the vineyard owner keeps going back to hire people. Normally, you'd sort of evaluate how much work you had to be done, had, had to be done, and you hired that number of people. It's not very efficient to have to keep going back. So we're not sure what's going on here, but maybe the work ended up being more than he thought, and so it's okay. But the main sense we get from this part of the story is that the vineyard owner is actually both just and generous. He's not trying to rip anybody off. He's paying a fair wage. And even by going back and finding the people that were never hired, I think that indicates, I mean, these are going to be people that maybe have some physical disabilities or elderly or something. For some reason, they weren't hired by anybody else. And so there's a sense in which this is actually a very gracious move on his part to go and hire more people. Now, the parable could just end there. And this would be a great parable, and I think it would be like a parable of something like Matthew 9, 37 to 38. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Pray for the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers in the harvest. That would have been a great sort of ending of the parable, and we wouldn't have to be upset by it. He could just say, look, there's so many workers. Come bring more in or something. But the story doesn't end there. Look at Act 2, starting in verse 8. Now, when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, 
Call the workers and pay them their wages, and note this, beginning with the last ones hired and then going to the first. The workers who were hired about five in the afternoon came and each received a denarius. Now, notice that the landowner brings his manager or his foreman into the picture, and while standing there, he sets up this very interesting situation. The landowner has the manager pay the workers in reverse order, a little odd, which means that everybody sees how much everybody else got paid. The people that worked all day, they see how much the people got paid that only worked an hour. And notice what happens. Everyone is amazed when those guys who only worked for one hour, they still get paid the full day's wage, a whole denarius for working one hour. And then there are other people as well. This is amazing. This is unheard of. What a gracious and kind landowner. He, he graciously hires these workers at the last hour, again, probably because they weren't hired by anybody else. And then instead of paying them like an eighth or a tenth of the wage, they get the full day's wage. What a blessing for these needy people. What an amazing landowner. And you can imagine with smiles on their faces at the, at the generosity, you know If you and I were there, you know what the full-day workers are thinking. They paid the guy who worked an hour a whole denarius, and then, okay, they also paid the other people. If those workers got paid a full amount, what's in it for me? I mean, we worked all day long in the Palestinian sun, breaking my back, weeding and digging and picking grapes. Ka-ching, this is like bonus time. I am going to make bank. This is more than a normal day's wage. I'm probably going to get three, four, five, who knows, maybe 10 times the normal amount. I'm going to take my kids out to Jehoshaphat's 31 kosher flavor ice cream. I'm going to buy that new goat's flask my wife wants and maybe even put some money away. But then look what happens. Look at verse 10. So when those came who were hired first, they expected to receive more even though it wasn't the agreed upon amount. They expected to receive more, but each one of them also received an areas. And when they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. (laughs) So the manager continues. He calls up everybody, he pays everybody's an areas, again, a little weird. And then finally, again, with all day workers come, they're thinking, this is it. You know, let it rain. Throw the denarii on me, right? But they are rudely awakened out of these exciting consumeristic visions by the cold water splash of seeing a mere one denarius placed in their dirt-blackened hand. So they can't resist it. They grumble and they complain, not not only in their hearts, but even openly. And I think, I know, I've talked with a lot of people about this parable, I know that you and I can understand this feeling. I think if we're honest with ourselves, we would probably feel the same way. Maybe you have felt that way in some situation you've been in. And if you're like a high justice person, person an Enneagram One or some other personality type, you probably hate this parable. This, like, this presses all your buttons probably. I remember distinctly many years ago, um, you know, thinking about this with kids, you know, this sense of like, this is not fair. This is not right. We worked our butts off. We deserve more than those bums. And again, if you've ever had kids, you know, or have been a kid, uh, you know that this is true of humans. I, I so distinctly remember when our oldest ones were very little, a long time ago, one time putting them to bed. And even though they had eaten their dinners and they, they had 
you know, they had had enough. They were still hungry. And back in those days, early days of parenting, we were much stricter than we are now. And I decided to be very gracious and break our dinnertime rules and give them each a couple of graham crackers, right? Very generous, I know. And in, in one room, I gave one kid the crackers, and then I went into the other room and gave the other kid the crackers. And rather than gratitude for me being generous, the first words out of that second kid's mouth, whose name I will not mention, uh, did you give him two crackers also? <laughs> not thanks. That was really nice that you broke the rules. Again, but did he get two crackers? How many crackers did he get? That's true of us as well. So too with these laborers. They were more concerned about what the others got than being thankful for what they had gotten. And then we get to the third and final act of this parable, the dialogue. Look at verse 11 again and following. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. Those who were hired last worked only one hour, they said, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work in the heat of the day. But he answered them, I'm not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the one who's hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I'm generous? So the first will be last, the last will be first and the first will be last. You see, the all-day workers' expectations of receiving more did not lead to gratitude at the landowner's justice and generosity to others, but it led instead to complaining and to grumbling and to discontent. The all-day workers were so mad that they even dared to speak up against the vineyard owner, the one who hired them, and maybe you would do the same. But his response is absolutely crucial. He doesn't take offense. He doesn't threaten them. Well, I'm never hiring you again. Instead, he answers kindly and clearly. And he says, friend, I've not done anything unjust, have I? And no, he hasn't. He paid them a fair wage for the day of work that they agreed upon. And it's crucial for you and me to understand this. His choice to be generous to others in no way violates his justice or rightness to the other workers. You know that that sink in? Because I know everything in us wants to say it's not fair. But by being generous to others, by no means violates the rightness that he did toward those with whom he agreed. I know that feels weird to us, but we need to retrain our thinking. It's not as if the vineyard owner didn't come through on what he said. That would be unjust. It's not as if he paid people randomly. That would be potentially unjust. He paid what he agreed, and then he chose to be generous to some. Moreover, all of this is his. He can do whatever he wants with it. It's all a gift. So no injustice was done here, despite you and I feeling that it was. And that's the power of this parable, is that it gets your hearts just like it did theirs. And then the wise and discerning, generous vineyard owner, who is obviously God in this story, points to the real issue, that this whole situation is a matter of our hearts. 
the all-day workers have not been wronged. The problem is that they are jealous or envious of others' good fortune. You've got to let that sink in. They have not been wronged. It's that they are driven by, just like you and me, jealousy and envy of others' good fortune. The vineyard owner, again, who is clearly God, has done no wrong. It may feel like injustice, but the real issue, Jesus points out, is jealousy and envy on the worker's part, not the injustice of the owners on the owner's part. And in the worker's minds, there's this cry of, this is unfair, how dare he do this? But this indignation is not based on the wrongdoing of anyone, but it is instead the blow-off steam of a heart full of envy. Again, look at verse 15. Are you envious because I'm generous? What's interesting is this is, I don't usually like to talk about Greek from the pulpit, and I always tell my students not to do this, but this is a very interesting thing. What it actually says there is, is your eye evil? And that's a, it's a fair translation to say, are you envious? Because the idea of the evil eye is what's behind this. The same thing he said back in Matthew 6.23, when Jesus talks about loving God more than money. And if that's true of you, your eye is evil. In the workers' minds, again, this cry of unfair is what's driving them. But that's not what's going on, Jesus says. This is a fascinating, infuriating maybe, relatable story with this twist and shocking ending. And we still have to ask, so what in the world does this mean? Well, we're not the first people to ask that question, nor the first people to be perplexed by this parable. A lot of Jesus' parables are actually explained by him. You think of the parable of the four soils, he goes on to explain it. This one he doesn't. In fact, most scholars would put this as like top three of most difficult parables to interpret. And in the history of the church, there have been all kinds of attempted explanations. Some would say that this parable represents the successive stages of the world where the five different hirings represent different people groups throughout history that have been brought into the kingdom and yet they're all welcome into the kingdom. Somewhat similar, a lot of people have seen this as a parable about like, no matter whether you become a Christian as a young child or on your deathbed, you're still welcome and welcomed by grace. Related to these, some people have argued that this is a picture of God's kingdom life where everyone is rewarded equally. That may not seem fair to us, the argument goes, but that's how God works. Or at a lower level of interpretation, many, especially maybe today, have tried to read this parable as if it's a a text about economics and about labor exploitation or something. Probably the broadest interpretation that a lot of people would hold to, and I'd love you know, to hear what you've thought of it before this, that this parable is simply a picture of God's incredible and marvelous grace and generosity, that it's really the gospel in a nutshell. So what, do you, what are we to make of these interpretations? Well, I actually think that some decent arguments could be made, and I think there's some truth in each of these, actually. With the exception of no difference of rewards in the kingdom and the economic reading, both of which I'm not convinced make the most sense here, I think we can say there are statements in each of those interpretations that are true about God and true about his kingdom that we can find from other places in scripture. But I I don't think this is the, I don't think any of these are the main point. And here's why. The answer again comes from looking closely at the context 
of what Matthew has given us, what we talked about in chapter 19, because that's the run-up. This parable is an answer to what happened before. And if you remember a couple of weeks ago that I said that all of Matthew 18.20 is really a picture of what life together can and should be like for Jesus' disciples. We saw Jesus in chapter 18 emphasizing that Christian relationships are one of forgiveness and reconciliation. Last week, Pastor Kevin gave an amazing sermon about Jesus' view on marriage. And now, continuing, Jesus is telling us something about how Christians are to live with each other. And let me sum it up with this sentence. We should live in relationships of gratitude to God, not envy toward each other. We should live in relationships of gratitude to God, not envy toward each other. Remember what we just saw in the stories right before this. This Jewish stud, the rich young ruler, he did not end up following Jesus because he couldn't give up his worldly possessions. But then these smelly fishermen and tax collectors that Jesus has called, they're told that because they have given up everything, that they are going to rule as lords right next to Jesus in his coming kingdom is an enthralling promise. And just like us, these disciples cannot help but think there must be something more worthy about themselves. Like that it's almost impossible not to begin to pat yourself on the back when you see someone make bad choices and the results of it and see yourself make good choices and the results of that. And so they begin to see themselves as quite unlike the rich young ruler. And Peter and the other disciples calculated that because they had left everything to follow Jesus, they should receive something back. And Jesus doesn't rebuke them for that. He says, yes, a hundredfold more than you think. But then knowing their hearts... He gives them this parable to remind us that every promised reward is a gift. It is completely out of the generosity of God's heart. The hiring and the paying is completely out of the generosity of the landowner and God himself. In other words, Jesus gives them and us a great promise, but the parable serves as a a healthy warning, a healthy reminder you will be blessed and you will be rewarded because of your sacrifices you made to follow Jesus. But beware, lest you begin to pat yourself on the back and to become proud about how much wiser and how much more dedicated you are to compared to people like the rich young ruler, you fill in the blank. Because entrance into God's kingdom is based on his sovereign and mysterious, gracious gift, not on our merit. But here's the problem, friends. As soon as you and me stop looking upward and remembering that grace and start looking sideways at other people, we lose our way. When we stop looking up to God in gratitude for all that we have and we start looking sideways, the result is not life and joy. The result is envy and discontent and grumbling. And Jesus is calling us to live our lives together by looking up to the Father's gracious provision, acknowledging all we have is from him, not looking at sideways at each other where there's no life. And just like everywhere else in scripture, this parable is an invitation for you and for me to pay attention to what's really going on inside our hearts, to do the very difficult work of actually looking inside, not just rushing through life, but looking inside. 
Jesus teaches this shocking parable, and it is a shocking parable, so that you and I will wake up and pay attention. And he wants us to pay attention then to that temptation to self-congratulation about our blessings and to that bend in our hearts toward jealousy and envy when God blesses other people. What about you? When things are going well for you in your heart of hearts, do you think it's because you deserve it? (laughs) I've seen this with myself. When things are going well for me, say in a month of money that I have a little extra money or something, I see in my heart this tendency to think, I deserve this. I work hard. And in a month where I'm struggling with money, I think, this is wrong. I'm being wronged here. <laughs> like everything in us is so, is so oriented that way that we think we get what we deserve and we, we, don't, we don't get what we want. We think we're being wronged. But friends, all we have is a super abundant grace gift from God. We have earned nothing. When we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive. When we were blind, he made us see. When we were deaf, he made us hear. And when we were making a wreck of our lives, he set us on a pleasant and new path. It is true that we can respond with more or less faithfulness and we will be rewarded accordingly, the Bible says very clearly. But we must never lose the foundational reality that God has never done anything except to be abundantly gracious to us. So we fight the temptation towards self-congratulations to thinking that we're better than others by reminding ourselves that everything we have is a gift. And as we live our lives together as Christians, we must also fight that bend in our hearts toward jealousy and envy to the blessings that God gives other people. And this, I think, is the heartbeat of this parable, that challenge, again, to look upward to God, not sideways to others. Because here's the reality, friends. Here's the total reality. There is always going to be someone who has more money than you, more talent than you, someone who's smarter than you, someone who's more attractive, more successful, more natural as a person, where all you do, you feel like is you try, 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 and they're more natural. There's always going to be people who have better marriages than you do, better kids, more and different blessings than you. And God has designed our hearts so that we will only find life when we keep our eyes directed toward him, not towards each other in envy and jealousy. And what about you? Are you jealous of another person's marriage? Are you jealous of another person's job or income or house or car or fame or children or vacation? How much of your life and my life is marked by FOMO? Again, I see this in myself. Even with with very good friends, I find myself not wanting them to spend other time, time with other people and have a better time than me, <laughs> right? Which is just so stupid. And teenagers, let me address you specifically because I think you guys are probably in the hardest place in life. You have all kinds of ideas and energy and feelings, but you're actually not in control of your own life yet, not, not fully, and that's hard. And the social pressure that teenagers and young 20s especially feel to always look perfect and to have the right opinions and the coolest ideas and to not miss out on all the fun that everyone else is supposedly having according to their Instagram posts, 
that cuts deep and it is very hard for any of us, but maybe especially for a young person to be content in light of that. But please hear me, teenagers and all of you, you will never find the life that you long for, the depth of relationships you long for until you direct your heart to God first. That is where life is found. And then you can lock arms with other people and enjoy friendship and love. But when you're looking to other people, you will end up with nothing but discontent. And that applies to all of us. So today I want to cast a vision to you, friends, for the joy and the freedom that comes from cultivating, intentionally cultivating a heart of gratitude toward God and not jealousy toward others. Instead, moving that jealousy and envy to rejoicing when you see someone else thrive to say, what a beautiful gift of God it is to that person that they can thrive and I can rejoice with them. And when we do that, there is more life to be found. We increase their joy, we increase our joy, and we increase God's glory. Rather than looking with envy and jealousy to others, rejoice with others in the blessings that they've been given. God does make it rain on all of us every day. And the constant sideways look at what others have puts you in a place of bondage and frustration and insecurity and loneliness and anger. And there is no place for that in God's kingdom. There's no life there. And so Jesus is saying the life of discontent is not how Christians should live in relationship with each other. Remember, he's painting a picture for us of life together. And I want to cast this vision for you that as we together learn to look to God, not in jealousy to each other and learn to rejoice in each other's blessings, we will find life together in God's kingdom. Amen and amen. Let me pray. I'm Kevin Jameson, lead pastor at Sojourn East. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, info about our church, and ways you can support the ministry of Sojourn East, visit sojournchurch.com slash east. Thank you for listening to the Human Flourishing Podcast. To learn more or get in touch with me, visit my website, jonathanpennington.com.